This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat and welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. This week we continue our conversation with Professor Bidyut Chakrabarti, a political scientist at University of Delhi. You may recall him a few weeks ago from our episode on communism in India. This time we explore another aspect of his research, focusing particularly on the Maoist movement. He has written volumes on this topic and I encourage you to look him up on Google Scholar to find the various papers he's done and books on Maoism in India. But for today, we will get a very good overview of the movement, the misperceptions and misconceptions around it, and how we can better understand its significance in Indian politics. I am once again at the University of Delhi in the Political Science Department, and uh, joining us also once again is Professor Bidyut Chakrabarti. You are a political scientist here. And uh, in the previous episode, you talked to us about communism in India. And in this episode, I want to focus on the Maoists in particular, which you've also written on, which I find really fascinating, because you've done fieldwork. And it's an issue that's really shrouded with a lot of controversy from the right and the left. So even a lot of mainstream leftist sources are very skeptical. Uh, they feel that they're theoretically inept, that they're too violent, that they're betraying even Maoist cause. So it's good to get some clarification on the issue. Now, maybe we can start with the basics. As a historian, as a political scientist, what was it that piqued your interest about the Maoists? You know, uh, I'm uh, born in West Bengal and raised in West Bengal, studied in West Bengal. And when I was a student of Calcutta Presidency College, which was one of the hotbeds of the erstwhile um, Naxalite movement, and I saw some of my senior you know, colleagues, senior you know, friends, who were participants in the Naxalite movement and came to us and talked about, you know, Maoist ideology, the Maoist notion of contradiction, Maoist idea of new democracy, the idea of red book, you know. So these are the ideas which really were very inspirational to me. So I got drawn to them, you know. I mean, not that I was a participant, but, you know, intellectually or mentally, you know, I had some affinity with these people because I was fascinated, you know, by their involvement in a particular cause despite the adverse consequences because they're all good students of Calcutta Presidency College. I mean, they could have done well in life. You know, they could have got very, you know, good jobs, yet they gave up everything to participate in this particular movement. So I think I was drawn to them because of these, you know, friends. Just to clarify, these were people who were educated, born in privilege, but drawn to a very radical militant ideology. What would compel somebody to renounce all that, to join a movement where you're in the jungle, you're at the threat of death every day. What do you think were some of the psychological, emotional motivations behind that? Well, I think that's uh, globally true. You know, if you look at the top revolutionaries, you know, globally speaking, they all were uh, people, you know, belonging to very rich family. You know, if they didn't want to take up this kind of risky life, they could have had a very cozy life. I mean, look at Che Guevara, you know, who was a doctor, and he could have had a very nice life in Argentina 
but he got drawn into the movement which Fidel Castro launched against American imperialism. Same is true of Fidel Castro, Raul Castro. So I think, you know, if you look at the history of revolution all over, the, even Mao Zedong didn't belong to a very poor family. So Lenin didn't belong to a poor family. So I'm talking about the big names. But if you look at the relatively the second, third rung you know, radical revolutionaries, I think that's true because they probably, you know, they did not see the drudgery of life when they were being raised. But when they got to know the actual life in reality, probably there was a kind of, you know, what is called reflection on their part. That probably they are enjoying their life at the cost of the mass of the people. I mean, I think the same story is about Lord Buddha. I mean, Buddha became Buddha when he couldn't stand the suffering of the people at large. So I think, you know, I have a theory here that I find that the revolutionaries are born not out of the what is called suffering, but because of the contrast which they couldn't digest. You know, it's a kind of reaction to the contrast which they could not digest, which they could not, you know, fathom in their eyes. That's why they got drawn to it. And if you look at you know, the Indian communist movement, you'll find most of the top-ranking communists, you know, who had a relatively very, you know, cozy life, in a very protected life. And after they got drawn to the reality, after they confronted reality in their own eyes, probably there was some you know, significant change took place in themselves. And they got drawn to this kind of movement to do something you know, positive, to do something constructive for the people at large. Yeah, there's something to be said about people who are born in wealth and privilege who would join politics not for wealth and privilege because they already know that life is not so much of a mystery for them and they can, I guess, think higher beyond that, right? And not be shackled by those base temptations, right? Now, uh, you were exposed to them at university, but I know that they had a beginning elsewhere, right? To a larger, longer narrative of communism in India. So perhaps as a summary, where do you locate? the growth of Maoism as a branch of Indian communism? You know, there are two ways, you know, one can look at the growth of this phenomenon called Maoism. You know, Maoism is something which is very popular now. But if you look at its earlier incarnation, which is called Naxalites, you know, it had emerged in a place called Nakshalbari. It's a village. It's a village in northern part of West Bengal, you know, very close to the Himalayan foothills. So in that small village called Nakshalbari village, the peasants you know, protested when their proceeds were taken away by the landlords as payment of the loan which they took earlier. So there was a kind of peaceful protest and there was a procession and the police opened fire resulting the killing of 13 of the participants in that procession. And, and they, you know, they retaliated not by firearms but by using arrow and bow. And they you know, hit one of the policemen by an arrow. So that was the kind of retaliation. See the comparison. You know, they were using the you know, sophisticated guns, and these people, the peasants, local peasants, were using just you know very traditional kind of you know weaponry, arrow and bow. So you know, it started like that. And because it started in the Naxalbari area, in Naxalbari village, it is known as Naxalbari movement. And you know, it started as I said, you know, in the in the month of April, May, in the spring. So it's known as the Spring Thunder. Spring Thunder. And you'll be surprised to know the moment it happened, it was broadcasted, you know, with a lot of appreciation by the Radio Beijing. Radio Beijing, you know, used to have a slot for Indian communism. And this particular movement, this particular campaign or event was highly appreciated as if it was the beginning of a kind of a prairie fire. 
the Naxalbari movement will start a priori fire. You know, that sort of, yes. uh, you know, Classic kind of ca yeah. characterization they gave. So I think it started from there and it went on till 1969. Then the state became very ruthless, you know, killed these Naxalites brutally. And uh, it was kind of, you know, forcibly stopped. And it was just wiped out from West Bengal. But, you know, the remnants were there in some of the, you know, districts, especially in the fringe districts, which are closing to the border of other states, Bihar, Jharkhand, and Odisha, you know, it remained. The, some of the old Naxalites, you know, they were not so known. The Most of the known Naxalites were either killed or captured or they, you know, shifted their loyalty to parliamentary communism. But there are second or third rank Naxalites who, who still believe in that kind of ideological program. They continued, you know, to nurture their ideological, you know, priorities in those remote areas. So Naxalite movement, you know, was dead on the surface. But the ideology, ideology of Naxalite movement, you know, remained alive in some of the areas, and which you know, flourished gradually in the form of, as I mentioned, Maoist. So Naxalite movements, you know, transformed to Maoism. You know, that itself is a very interesting, fascinating story, mm -hmm. how it became Maoism. After Naxalite movement failed, there are many splinter groups which flourished in some parts of the tribal dense districts, tribal dense states of India. And two outfits became very prominent. One of them, which was very critical in case of Andhra Pradesh, called People's War Group, PWG. And another, which was very effective, very you know, dominant in the eastern part of India, called MCC, Maoist Communist Center. So, you know, these are the two militant groups, and these are the two groups which still believe that revolution was possible only by extinguishing the bourgeoisie. You know, class annihilation campaign of the traditional the Maoist kind of stuff of class annihilation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, killing of people, killing of people belonging to the bourgeoisie. Yeah. So the Mao MCC and PWG, they continued with that kind of sloganing, with that kind of, you know, what is called strategy and ideological belief. Right. But there are some Naxalite groups who decided to join the mainstream. You know, some of the top-ranking Naxalites, former Naxalites, they became part of CPI ML and they contested elections, you know, and they also became member of the legislative assembly, you know, mm -hmm. the top, top uh, Naxalite leaders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the splinter groups, you know, there are splinter groups. Some of them continue to remain with the same ideological, you know, kind of influence and some of them became part of parliamentary, you know, mm -hmm. politics. So this is how this started, you know, the, the Naxalite movement in the form of PWG and in the form of MCC continued to follow one line of action and the Naxalite movement in the form of parliamentary communism continued to follow another line of action. And the story, you know, became very interesting and very complicated as we entered the you know 21st century. Mm -hmm. And by that time, you know, the Naxalites who some of them who felt that revolution is the only way of salvation, they wanted to mobilize the splinter groups and form one group. So I think Till 2004, it is the splinter groups which became important. And of these splinter groups, as I mentioned, PWG and MCC were very important. And after 2004, there's one particular group. And that's a different story. We'll come back to that later. So as a scholar, what did you feel was lacking in the extant research about the Maoists that you had to intervene? You had to say, all right, the things that I was reading about the Maoists up to that point before you did your research was insufficient. I needed to address some of the lacunas. So as a scholar, what did you notice was insufficiently addressed? You know, I didn't have any preconceived agenda, to be very frank with you. 
as i mentioned you know i got drawn to this kind of ideological priorities from my college days you know i didn't you know think of being a participant but i wanted to understand you know what provoked them to give up all the worldly you know comfort and uh, opt for a very difficult lifestyle you know that was the question which i had in mind so i wanted to you know respond to that question and i got a chance because a student of mine who was working among the maoists and he finished his phd so i got drawn to then we did a field trip in odisha in odisha three districts malkangiri gajapati and raigora you know these are the tribal districts and these are now you know known as the worst affected left wing extremist district so i think you know i got drawn so how did you just get there i mean i'm sure it was heavily guarded heavily policed what kind of access did you need in order to you know build their trust no you know the father that's i made the point my student you know who is from baharampur baharampur is part of you know this belt so he knew some of the you know old maoists so he expressed the interest to understand you know the phenomenon i didn't meet the top ranking naxalite top ranking maoist but i met you know second or third third rank you know maoist you know i'll tell you a very interesting story you know it was december it was december and we were asked to wait near you know it's called shopping complex is a marketplace in you know, a village marketplace i don't know whether you have an idea of village marketplace you know you'll find about 10 12 shops selling food stuff you know selling uh, cigarettes selling you know locally made ice cream fruits and you know these are all uh, you know it's called you know mud huts there are mud huts you know it's not like delhi yeah. and then uh, we are asked to wait there and we waited and then uh, somebody came and just you know you know this guy knew somebody so you know i was introduced to them and then i was taken there you know i i sat on a cycle with one of the guys and then we went on for you know i think several hours three hours i think and then we were stopped somewhere again in a marketplace again then we were taken to somewhere else so then by the time you know we wanted to see how the justice system works you know that was the concern so then they said okay i'll take you to the to our court to our court but you have to come there somebody of us will take you there and then at 3 o'clock in the morning we started our journey at 7 o'clock in the evening and 3 o'clock in the morning we reached a village and there was a kind of you know mud hut and from outside you'll find it's just a kind of very innocent kind of mud hut but once you get in you'll find a lot of people are sitting there and there was a kind of you know court going on and in the local language you know odia language which i didn't understand but my student he understood so he translated and you know there was a guy who was convicted of raping one of the local girls and that girl complained so then what was the punishment that sort of thing and there is also the charge of being informer you know this sort of thing it went on for about 2 hours and by 5:30 the court dispersed so you know i found that though they follow a different kind of ideology maoist ideology but when it comes to the court system they simply follow the bourgeois court system yeah you know for instance you know there was a kind of convict and there was a group of people who are defending that you know he is a culprit and there are some who are defending no no, no he is not a culprit so i think but our, this was at 3am 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 in the morning it's not bourgeois <laughs> you know <laughs> because you know, yeah, yeah. yeah because you know that's a time when probably they get to you know get together and they are not seen by others yeah, yeah. right and interestingly as you said the, the point which you made that the police guarded you know i knew the police the local policeman the boss of the police because he was a student of mine so i told him that i am going to be with them and you know at one level there was some understanding you know the police knows that they are doing something good for the people and police also knows that they are the ones who are engaging them you know 
to do something concrete for the country so i think that way you know it's a kind of you know reciprocal arrangement between the police and the maoists right so at one level you know if you look at on the surface they are enemies they are there to kill each other but if you talk to them if you you know understand the dynamics you'll find there is some kind of you know understanding yeah. uh, somewhere you know some kind of mutual respect mutual sounds respect, like mutual respect mutual respect, yeah. mutual respect that's what is most important and that was you know what is very fascinating to me that you know they are following the typical bourgeois system of you know judicial uh, how shall i explain Uh, functioning, functioning of the court, they they follow basically the bourgeois system. But uh, when it comes to, as you said, the timing, that's very you know unusual. Yeah. But you know that's because of the contextual difficulties yeah. which they you know confront every day because they don't know whether you know tomorrow they will be able to you know yeah. congregate there yeah. because yeah. they just keep shifting. You see, but it is essentially a, a village-based organization, and you will hardly find people from urban areas because the dialect you know which they are using. that's typical village dialect you know even in odisha if you know odia language you will not be able to understand their dialect because you know, it differs from one area to another so that shows that it is essentially they are essentially the village based people, the village folk so that's one difference which you should in mind which is different from the earlier naxalite movement as i mentioned earlier the naxalite movement was you know heavily manned by urban people urban dwellers you know college educated you know people you know as you said belonging to rich middle class you know people belonging to calcutta the city you know city bred college educated <coughs> naxalites but in the in the maoist you will not find them you will hardly find this city educated middle class on the contrary you will find lot of people who are coming from the grassroots and they are the people who are taking lead in you know, the naxal that's why it is continuing it is it's still continuing because you know they are building their campaign on the basis of their genuine social economic and political grievances that was me amat fat rahman alongside professor bidyut chakrabarti political scientist at university of delhi and our discussion on maoism in india we'll be right back after this this is night school on bfm 89.9 the business station BFM 89.9 you're listening to me Ahmad Fuad Rahmat and this week we are in India again we shall continue our conversation with Professor Bidyut Chakrabarti a political scientist at University of Delhi on Maoism and the significant threat it poses to the Indian state especially given its hold over the red corridor in the first part of the show we got a good overview of the context and general considerations which you keep in mind when trying to understand the movement we shall go into further detail in the second part of the show So just to get the picture right it seems that when we talk about the Maoist held areas they're running the so-called system there so they're not necessarily hiding all the time or something i mean they're already absorbed in the context i mean they they already localized their presence is already recognized by the residents there so they're not they're not seen as an external element to life there no that's the point you know i made earlier that you know maoism has a very bright future in india simply because the point which you made and they are localized you know they are flourishing their activities they are you know expanding their sphere of influence simply because they keep on recruiting local people and the local people are drawn to them not because of anything else not because of any concrete gain but as i mentioned earlier because they are given a dream of future bright future at least they know that maybe we are suffering because we are born in this particular part of the world and we are born with lot of you know poverty but my children you know future generation will not suffer like me so i think maoism is flourishing because ideologically they have been able to inject 
this kind of optimism among the people. So this is an important difference which you must take into account to understand Maoist movement. And that's why I said Maoism has a bright future because they are localized. And second point which is also interesting that you know Indian state has not been able to contain the campaign which the Maoists have already launched. Because you know the sort of development, if you see their area, the development is awfully bad, you know. And thirdly, you know, Maoists have empowered them to assert their right, you know, because most of the tribal people they survive by collecting, you know, what is called tendu leaf. Tendu leaf is used to produce a local cigarette, you know, the country-made cigarette, which is very popular in India and cheaper than cigarette. And this particular leaf you'll find only in this part of the country. So previously they used to collect leaves and the contractor used to give them money according to their whims. But now there is a system because of the Maoist intervention that you know per kilogram you have to pay 90 rupees. So if they collect say one or two kilograms they will get 180 rupees. That's a sizable sum which was not the case earlier. So that way I think the Maoism has given them not only a dream, a bright future but also empowered them you know to assert their rights in the face of the contractors. One of the critiques against the Maoist movement that you mentioned is that they are theoretically inept in that they don't really understand Marxism, their leadership are sort of out of touch, and that really is just a disenfranchisement seeking an ideology and they've just appended the word Maoist without really understanding the history or dialectics or anything like that. Now, to what extent is that true? Do you feel that it's a credible critique? You know, Fawad, you know, I don't have evidence to you know, agree what you are saying because I have a feeling that Maoist leadership Leadership. I, I know I didn't have any interaction with the top leadership, but I uh, saw some of the literature. You know, they are not, I mean, I agree with you, they are not adequately theoretically equipped. Yes, I mean, that part is true. But they know how to inspire the local people. Because, you know, suppose, you know, for the local people, they don't want to know what is the nature of contradiction according to Mao, what is the nature of new democracy according to Mao. But they want two meals a day. If you, you know, provide them two meals a day, if you tell them how to get two meals a day by snatching, you know, your share from the landlord, I mean, that's Maoism for them. So I think, you know, from that point of view, yes, I agree that Maoist movement or Maoist leadership in contemporary India, they may not leave enough theoretical literature, you know, for the, for the future historians to study. But they have given enough strategic devices, you know, to articulate the goal of Maoism, that, you know, poverty to be eradicated, you know, distribution system should be equal, you see. So nobody should be without food. No child should be left behind in school. You know, these are the basic things, basic human, you know, necessity. Mm-hmm. So Maoism, by providing all these basic necessities, you know, gave them that kind of ideological concern. So if you look at Maoism from that point of view, I think they are trying to translate Maoism in terms of actual practice, in terms of actual designs of political you know, change, of political dialogue, of political devices. But the Maoists are not just targeting the landlords, are they? I mean, they've also had run-ins and skirmishes and even bloody fights with the CPIM of West Bengal, right? So one of the critiques as well is that they're not thinking ahead and that they're just disrupting the potential of a left unity in India because of this. The violence is not just targeted capitalists, but also other leftists. What do you say to that? You know, Fawad, you know, I mean, for them, CPIM is Marxist by name. 
not by belief so you know they make a distinction so they are as bad as capitalist i mean they're just a different name i mean they are using cpim you know to what is called sell their potential but if you look at their you know practice they are as bad as capitalist so when they kill a cpim leadership when they fight against cpim they are not fighting against another left group they're fighting against another version of capitalism you know capitalism appropriated you know mm-hmm. left emblem left you know nomenclature to justify you know their personal gain mm-hmm. so i think this is the point which you should take into account that it is not a fight between two left groups for the maoist it is not a left group at all right and the second point you know which is a kind of expansion of on the point which you just made that you know left by itself you know the ideology left ideology by itself is based on the famous hegelian dialectics you know thesis synthesis and antithesis so in the maoist or even the kind of post maoist you know or post post maoist when the challenge a particular established system of thought system of ideas line of thinking they are in a way following the marxist dialectics mm-hmm. that whatever you are saying today is a thesis mm-hmm. i'm questioning so i'm providing antithesis and out of this kind of struggle emerges synthesis mm-hmm. again the synthesis become thesis so the process goes on mm-hmm. so i think you know for the maoist you know they are following the dialectics probably you know they may not be able to explain because as i said you know they are not adequately theoretically equipped but when the question that whatever landlord is doing is unfair landlord should redistribute his or her wealth according to equal principle of distribution i mean they are questioning that we are providing antithesis you know conceptually we will explain as antithesis but for them it is their demand because what you are doing is unfair so i think you know academic there is a problem with us you know we tend to you know what is called problematize everything from our point of view so i know i am one of those kind of rare academics who try to understand the phenomenon from their point of view and i have understood that when they question the established system of you know production or the established system of you know human interaction they are trying to find an alternative you know for me it is antithesis for them it is just an alternative mm-hmm. and this alternative is based on their own conception of being unfair so you know this is something which you need to take into account if you think and the third important aspect which i have not talked about yet you know it is not true it is not entirely true that maoism is trying to understand indian situation with reference to you know foreign prism no i mean the maoism is one of this in a rare species of communism in india which is trying to understand indian reality from the indian point of view you know you will be surprised to know that you know one of the top leaders requested or asked the cadres to understand gandhi that you know gandhi needs to be understood because gandhi is the one who talked about the people and you know there are a lot of people nowadays you know they are trying to understand what gandhi talked about the idea of harijan the idea of satyagraha the idea of peaceful you know protest the idea of peaceful you know demonstration so these are the kind of techniques you know which gandhi evolved the top leaders in you know, ganapati is his name he is asking that you know we need to understand our historical reality only then we can understand you know the nature of you know exploitation the nature of you know extraction of surplus value so that way i think maoism is trying to indigenize indigenize marxism probably they don't use the vocabulary they don't use that terminology which we are familiar with but they are actually if you look at the substance of what they are saying 
they're actually you know following that sort of conceptual categories mm-hmm. so they may not be able to you know provide the level which we know but when they explain they are actually explaining them in that language so you said that they're expanding that they've been successful and they're winning the hearts and minds of the locals can you give some examples of some of the gains they've made you know i wouldn't say they are successful they are expanding yes you know that's based on government statistics you know because if you look at the home ministry's classified documents uh, you will not get for this year but you will get it uh, two years ago and today you will get till 2000 i think 15 so if you look at the government statistics home ministry statistics you will find the number of districts which are being affected is expanding so you know that's one of the kind of evidence to show that they are expanding and secondly if you look at the and if you go to the affected areas you will find that there are number of in you know, splinter groups which this government says they are frontal organization of the maoists you know they are also expanding you know they, mostly you'll find you know i don't know whether it's deceptive kind of way of you know misguiding the people misguiding the police but you know there are a lot of ngos you know for instance you know, in odisha you know, there are ngos for protecting one particular hill you know protection of niyamgiri hills and niyamgiri hills is the place where you will find bauxite enormous quantity of bauxite so now they are trying to protect that hill they said that our god lives there so if you take the hill away from us you are taking our god away so there is a kind of movement going on and this movement is being spearheaded not by the cpi maoist but by this ngo and a lot of people are coming and even the last time when the posco wanted to have its you know steel planet uh, so uh, that's right you know you know that steel plant in there people opposed and that particular ngo opposed and then finally supreme court of india intervened that if the local government we call it panchayat if the local panchayats majority of local panchayats endorsed the claim of posco only then posco is allowed to go ahead otherwise posco will have to just you know pack up their bag and baggage which they did so you know they are operating at different levels at one level yes they are interested in you know attacking the police you know it have happened week before last they killed about 25 paramilitary forces in a place called sukba in chatisgarh so that's one way of looking at things one way of undertaking the maoist movement another happens to be this kind of ngos where people you know following gandhian method you know they are undertaking demonstration they are undertaking you know what is called sitins for days together and you know they succeeded so i think they are operating at that level and there are reasons to believe that these people who are you know leading these ngos are influenced by maoist ideology and you know one of them got maxese award one of them got maxese award that means what you know they are on the surface you know mm-hmm. i mean you can't just blame them police cannot put them behind jail mm-hmm. but they are the ones who are working you know, for the people at large and because naxalites or the maoist are there people tend to identify them tend to you know, link them with that so you know ideologically they are identical ideologically they are following the same kind of goal but when it comes to practice you know maoist have got one type of practice these ngos have got another type of practice but you know so at at the level of you know at the level of working for the people they follow the same kind of ideology so that's what is very interesting happening that's why i said it's expanding so for the government records these ngos were also identified as part of the maoist organization they call it frontal organization but if you ask them they deny it they said no we are not part of maoist movement we do it because you know we don't think that you know the displacement of these people is is fair so how can you displace them because they have been living there for generations after generations you know they don't know how to live in delhi they are used to that part of the locality so much 
that if you dispense them, they will die. Because they will be rootless, you know, and they don't want to live. So I think the demand of these people is being, you know, articulated by these NGOs. And in a way, these NGOs are following the same kind of path which the Maoists are following. Their method is different. So I get the impression it's a very dynamic development there, right? Uh, it's in response to certain hegemonies of corporate agendas, right? The mining and, of course, the disenfranchisement of the tribal. So it's not, it's not just this sort of senseless militant movement that's just violent and there's no content or whatever. No, but first, I think, you know, this is one part of the story, that the Maoist movement, you know, as I mentioned, has given them a dream. But there is another part of the story, which also we need to, you know, focus on. You know, nowadays, I find that Maoists have developed some kind of history interest, right? So they, in order to, you know, make them viable, make them relevant. So they are now resisting government effort for development. Now, you know, the killing of these paramilitary forces the other day, these people, what are they doing? They are helping the contractor to build road. Now, once the road is built, communication will be smoother, easy. And once the road and the all sort of, you know, what is called developmental packages, developmental aids, could be transported pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Now, if that is transported easily, the Maoist will become redundant, yes. that the government is doing something positive for them. So Maoism and Maoist, they are asking them that we are doing something good for you. But if the government does it in a better way, so obviously they will lose their popularity. So nowadays, you know, one of the you know, kind of what is called reasons for killing these people is that the Maoists have developed some kind of history interest. They don't want to want them, want the government to build bridges. Because if the bridge is built, communication will be smoother. They don't want government to build school buildings. Because if the school building is built, the paramilitary forces will be will be staying there to contain them. So the innocent people, you know, innocent people got sandwiched mm-hmm. by the government forces and by the Maoists. You know, there are a lot of people, you know, who don't want to be part of this uh, Maoist stream. Because they are part of the Muslim, because there is no alternative. Yes. But if the alternative is given, the Maoist will become redundant. People will not be part, because that's a difficult life to lead. You know? They don't know whether they will be alive tomorrow. Yeah. They will be you know, subject to torture. They will be killed by the police firing. Mm-hmm. So they prefer to have a peaceful life. But Maoist will not allow them, the government, you know, to build this kind of developmental designs. So you know, that's why I said that you know, the people, you know, the people happen to be the target for both the government and Maoist. Yeah. So they get sandwiched. They get sandwiched as a result in the process. So that is something which is very, you know, now alarming. It's very alarming. And that's why I said there are some within the Maoist group, they are now in, in a dilemma. What to do? What to do? Because development, you cannot stop. You can kill 25 people tomorrow, but the government will send 2,500 people tomorrow. You can't do that because your resources are very limited. Your manpower is very limited. So ultimately, if the government wants, then probably government can do something good. But government also doesn't want because so long as Maoist movement remains, government will have a political kind of you know device to say that we are you know trying to kill them. The moment that problem is over, there is nothing to talk about. So I think you know it's a very interesting political game going on you know between the Maoists and the government. The government has vested interest to sustain the Maoist movement, and the Maoist also has a vested interest to stop developmental packages. But who are the casualty? The people. People are the casualty. So that's something which we should 
also take into account. We have to wrap up now. What are your concluding thoughts for our listeners? Like, what should they keep in mind if they want to know more about Maoism in India? Again, the point which I made, you know, earlier, you know, which I keep making in my class, that you know, that it has to be contextually studied, the prevalent social, economic, and political dynamics need to be taken into account to understand the phenomenon because it cannot be, you know, understood by any derivative kind of formula. That's one which we should keep in mind. And the second thing that, you know, these are all attempts at mobilizing people for a cause. In the independence movement, it was Gandhi. It was Gandhism, which was the kind of, you know, driving force to mobilize people against the British, despite adverse consequences. And at that point of time, you know, there was an alternative, the communism, which didn't gain much momentum, but over a period of time it gained momentum. So Maoism is just one of the alternative means, alternative modes of political mobilization for a cause. So I think, you know, history has shown that there's no dearth, there's no dearth of alternatives. And alternatives emerge out of historical, you know, what is called equations, historical interfaces, so I think we have to keep it in mind that Maoism probably is one of the most effective, most you know, thought-provoking alternative now, but it may not happen like that tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll have some other alternative. That is how we learn from history. Yeah, I think it was Mao who said that it takes 500 years to build communism. So I don't know, which, we're just starting really in a lot of ways. In any case, thank you so much, Professor Bidyot Chakrabarti, for sharing us your thoughts on Maoism in India. Very mystifying issue. Not many people have much clarity about it, but you've been on the ground to make direct contact with them and understand their world better, which I think is very, very valuable for an understanding of Indian politics in general, not just communism. Your book is Communism in India, and subtitle is Events, Processes and Ideologies, and it's uh, published by Oxford, New York, and they can get this book online. That was our conversation with Professor Bidut Chakrabarti of the University of Delhi. He is a political scientist and has published volumes on Gandhi studies, Indian politics, and communism in India. We heard him today discussing his thoughts on Maoism and his experience researching there, and we hope that it's given you a more comprehensive account of the movement going beyond the usual misconceptions we have of it. Should you want to contact the show, feel free to email us at bfmnightschool@gmail.com or look us up on Facebook. That is just BFM Night School. Type that in the search space. And be sure to download our app that is on Google Play. You can also find it at the Apple App Store. Once again, I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahmat and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.